Welcome to Common Sense Institute's Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Alexa Eastberg, and I am a research analyst with Common Sense Institute. As an analyst, I am proud to help provide fiscal analysis on proposed policy changes facing Colorado. Policy changes can often have broad and long-term ripple effects. We utilize dynamic economic models and other tools to simulate economic impact scenarios across Colorado's economy. I hope you enjoy this episode as we dig into the data. And now, here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to the Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I'm chairman of the board of CSI. Thank you for joining us today. As the COVID-19 pandemic recedes, leaving in its wake declining public student enrollment and achievement, local, state, and federal dollars continue to flow to the Colorado school districts in ever larger amounts, and we'll discuss that in more detail. Despite this, student achievement made only a modest recovery in English language arts, and that's reading and writing, in 2022, after a huge plunge in 2021, and fewer than four in 10 Colorado students can perform grade level in math proficiency. To discuss these issues, I am joined today by CSI's current and former education fellows. Brenda Dick Honer was CSI's Mike A. Laprino Free Enterprise Fellow in 2021 and is now the president and CEO of Education Advocacy Group, Ready Colorado. Brenda, it's great to have you back. Thanks, Earl. Happy to be here. And also, I'm pleased to welcome Jason Golden, who's this year's CSI Education Fellow and the author of the latest Dollars and Data Report. Jason, great to have you on board. Thanks. I'm happy to be here for this important conversation. Let's get started, shall we? Jason, uh, you've been looking at the latest financial data very closely. In your latest report, you offer some compelling insights across a few different dimensions, specifically school revenue, expenditures, and the education workforce. You also look at the size of the student population being educated and their performance outcomes. There's been a lot of news about enrollment decline in the public schools across the state following the pandemic. Could you help us understand this a bit more and its impact on revenue? Sure. I think the first thing to note is that uh, over the last 10 years, Colorado is a growth state. Um, There's been a consistent climb in student population. And there in 2020, uh, at the onset of the pandemic, it saw for the first time in a decade a dramatic drop in enrollment. And how that affects funding is because schools are generally funded on a per-pupil basis. So losing students means for a local school losing money. So on average, uh, across the state, it's different because of local taxes. But across the state, on average, per-pupil revenue is roughly $8,500 per student per year. So imagine the 22,000 student drop in 2020 equates to $187 million lost uh, in public funding spread across those local schools. Uh, Also, there's the fundamental question of where did these students go? How are they doing? Sure, some of these students um, were from families who were able to opt out of public school and go to private school. But there's a lot of families who weren't in that situation, and I have questions about how these students are doing. So declining enrollment, uh, there's, there's both a cost to the budget and uh, a cost to human lives. Wait a minute. Isn't the budget supposed to work that way? I thought, in essence, funding went by the student population. So isn't the system working correctly? If you have less students, then you need less money 
to educate them? Or am I missing something? No, point well made. It's supposed to work like that in theory. What uh, districts and local schools will 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 argue is that they have fixed cost. And um, I'll, but I'll, I'll I'll say something else. I'm not. I'm saying that there was a budgetary effect to the declining enrollment. I am not arguing that schools felt that pain. With the inflow of federal dollars and with um, a policy change that ensured that local school districts were basically held harmless for any loss of students, uh, backfilled by state and mostly federal dollars, I'm not here to argue that schools felt the pain of that decline because I'm not sure that they did. Okay. I have a follow-up question to that. Okay. We've got uh, the student decline. You said population's growing. What in the world is happening that we have fewer students? Are we just having fewer children in the state and so that there's smaller families, so there's fewer students? Or are we having a migration that we're unaware of from public schools to someplace else? Or is everybody just dropping out? What's going on? You know, it's, it's too much. That, that, that question is packed with variables. So, yes, Colorado is a growth state. We're very attractive. Families want to move here. It's difficult to look at that from the statewide level. you got to drill down a little bit to local areas. For example, in a district like Aurora, you have declining enrollment in certain sections of the city, but rapid growth in other parts. So while they have this uh, quandary of needing to close under-enrolled schools, they also have a demand to build new schools where the population is. You probably feel I'm being a little bit obnoxious here, but... Are the students evaporating? Are, are the state as a whole mm-hmm. has fewer students. What's going on? Oh, I think there are some some larger demographics outside of education. I think that it is not the subject in this report, but I think there are some demographic trends about uh, families getting smaller. Yeah, I mean, I think nationally, there no we know that there is a shift in. Uh, so the, the under 12 age population group age group is probably decreasing in size. Is that fair to say? I don't. I didn't. That that specific question was not a part of this study. I I think yes. My gut says yes, but I don't. I don't want to get out over okay, my skis here. Okay. Well, I'm gonna let you off the hook, Brenda. Please well, fill in if you would, please. Thanks. So just one quick point. I mean, I think with the thirty thousand or so students that left public schools during the pandemic, you know, we know a good portion of those went to the private school sector, and uh, and an increase in homeschooling as well. And so oh, in those kids, that's part. right. Yes. Especially what's interesting too, is we've seen populations that traditionally haven't homeschooled their pop, their, their kids of so students of color have very low homeschool rates in general and now have higher, the more families are homeschooling their kids, regardless of kind of their socioeconomic background. And I think, um, that didn't change this current school year. So they left during the pandemic, this current school year, they haven't come back quite yet. And so the question is long-term, do they eventually come back to the public school system or do they stay in the private school system in the homeschooling arena? Well, this probably isn't part of the study again, Jason and Brenda, but can you get a good education through homeschooling programs? Do they really have various uh, educational programs set up so that my grandchildren can, can get a good education as well as they could by going to a good public school? 
Oh, absolutely. And I think we've seen that in the home, I think why kids have stayed in a homeschool environment after the pandemic is because they found that they can progress at a much quicker rate and accelerate their learning. It's very personalized. There's many supplemental resources available for homeschool kids and extracurricular activities that they can plug into. So I think more families were kind of forced to try it out during COVID and realize it is something that works for their kids. It's not going to work for all kids but I think more families found that it works. Well, we're always interested in outcome, and that was one of the first things that we talked about with regards to my introduction is the outcome. We've had some setbacks, okay? But the federal government has written to our help, to our rescue, and we have relief funds that are going to schools. But that's not long-term, Brenda. That's there for, I think, three years. What are we talking about in relief funds, and how are they being used, and what happens if they get dried up? Yeah, it's a good question, Earl. You know, during COVID, there were three different stimulus packages that totaled $1.6 billion that went directly to schools through a formula. There was another $200 million that went to the State Department of Education to spend. Uh, so out of the $1.6 billion that needs to be spent by school districts, they have um, until September of 2023 for some of the dollars. Most of the dollars they have until September 2024. So we'll okay. see the bulk of spending happen over the next two school years. What we have to hope is that school districts are making smart decisions with that money, not making long-term financial commitments, and utilizing it to do the intensive um, high-dose tutoring, credit recovery, uh, the, the intensive interventions that are needed for students to catch up from the very real learning loss that occurred during the pandemic. So you're really advocating, hey, we've, we've got a proficiency problem. That's what these funds are set for. So every school district has, can have their own answer as to how to use these funds to overcome that proficiency problem. Do I hear That's you correctly? That's exactly what I'm saying, yes. All right, good. Talk to me a little bit more about that learning loss in the last couple of years. What did the your report that you just put out suggest to us that this happening and the learning loss and and what insights can you share with us? Sure, it's not pretty. I will say that. Well, let's look at the early grades. There was a dip in math and reading scores at the third grade level, but frankly, there was nothing to celebrate uh, before that dip. Um, you know, less than fifty percent of the state's kids read and do math at grade level proficiency and wait, then wait 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 yeah. wait 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 if i remember correctly brenda and some other studies that we've done i'm sure some work that you've done at daniels and other place and el Pomar, jason the third and fourth grade are essential as far as getting yep. the skill set to then learn in yep. fifth sixth and seventh grade and there's a high correlation if i remember correctly and correct me if i'm, I'm wrong of graduation rates from high school to your proficiency level in third and fourth grade. That's absolutely right. Here, here's a... Um, so you're telling me we have 50%? Here, here's a nice note for your listeners. Before grade three, you learn to read. At and after grade three, you read to learn. If you have not established and secured the ability to read, uh, there is a very low likelihood that you can succeed uh, and properly progress through the rest of your educational experience. My goodness, your 50% number is staggering, and that's for our state of Colorado? That is correct. And yeah. we're supposed to be one of the more enlightened states in the country? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And at the high school level, actually, there was also a slight drop in uh, graduation rates uh, post-pandemic as well. So we had been on an upward trajectory, but even still, only 82% of students graduate in four years. 
here in Colorado, what, what happens to the other students? Okay, I'm going to put both of you on the grill here, all right? I want to know the graduation rates down. Fewer than half the students are performing at grade level. All right, you're the omniscient, benevolent dictator of education, both of you. What do Coloradoans seem to be doing poorly, and what are your thoughts as to what we need to do? Brenda? <laughs> Happy to take the first stab at that very easy question. Thanks, Jason. I, you know, I think this is a problem of implementation, honestly, because I think we have we know from research what works, and I think I'm going to use third grade reading as an example to stay on that path. I think it took our state almost a decade to convince schools to teach reading in a way that is based on brain science and how we know kids know learn how to read. It it I, my school district Jeff, Jefferson County uh, just changed their reading curriculum to comply with this science of reading best practices that we know. Just changed it. So uh, you know this law was passed several years ago and they just got around to actually using a curriculum that we know works. So I think there's a um, there's a lot we know well that works well. And there's and then we're not getting that into the classroom. I think we have a dearth of good leaders. We know the school principal from research is a critical role, and we honestly don't have a very good leadership pipeline as well. Um, so uh, there's you know there's a lot of reasons, Earl, but I think it's not because we don't know how to do it. You know what I hear you saying, and I'm going to wait for your answer in a second, Jason. Is if grandparents and parents don't get informed and get engaged things are likely to lag behind. Is that a fair statement? Parent engagement is certainly very important, and we know that from the from research as well. And certainly the more involved parents are in their education, I'll stick with reading. I mean, we know that reading at home, incredibly incredible boost to kids' learning when parents read 20 to 30 minutes a night to their children. So, so we just can't important. turn our kids over to the institution and hope good things are going to happen. That's right. That's right. Jason? Uh, especially when the institution needs to, in my opinion, improve on three critical points. And I'll, and I'll say funding. I, there's arguments on both sides. I'm not yet convinced we have a funding problem in public education. We most certainly have a funding allocation problem in K-12 education. For example, since 2000, while student enrollment has grown 25%, the number of principals has risen 73%. The number of administrators has grown a whopping 132%. So there's something wrong. There's something imbalanced about that. Um, Agility in the system. We need a system flexible enough to accommodate the ever-evolving needs of students as opposed to staying rigid to protect the comfort and convenience of adults. And finally, I'd say uh, relevance, engagement. This is common sense, with, with pun intended. But educational content must be meaningful, attractive, engaging, relevant to the students. Make it mean something. We do a terrible job of that, not because we don't know how. It's just we don't prioritize that. There are issues with attracting and retaining quality teachers, and that's a big problem. That translates to uh, classrooms where students aren't getting the best teaching and learning environment. Each district supposedly has their own administrative uh, board of school districts. Why is there this this lack uh, within the system? Is the system not working at the administrative? Forget the school. Forget the principal. Is the uh, school district lacking in in giving direction? Is it uh, they've got the money? Are they 
not giving the direction? What's going on? Think about the nature of school boards. They are the highest authority in that jurisdiction, in that school district. They ultimately get to make all of the decisions. But who are school board members? School board members are, a lot of times, parents, sometimes uh, former educators, um, just a mix of folks. There's no formal training. There's no barrier to entry. There's no uh, prerequisites or qualifications. Is that the superintendent of the school's job to take a direction as to what is intended for the school district and then hire principals to then execute what's intended? Um, help, me, help me out. No, I think that's an important point. Roles clarification is critical here. A superintendent is the chief executive of the district. He is he or she is supposed to make uh, that system run effectively with student performance, in my opinion, the highest priority. But the superintendent is subject to that elected board, and that elected board, that elected board of directors at the local school school district level, they do set the tone for what happens in a district, and sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. Well, in corporate America, and forgive me for wandering off script here for a second, but in corporate America, you have a board of directors. And they're hired by the community, i.e. the shareholders, to, in essence, represent them to carry out what the purpose of that organization might be. And then their job is to make certain that they've got the right executive in place and the resources in place for that executive to carry out the vision. Let me note where, the difference where is that? Where is the modeling faltering here? Because in, those, in that example, in corporate America, you usually pick... Uh, directors who have experience, who have proven capacity to run enterprises like that, of which they sit on the board. The school district is something totally different. If, if we did a scan of school board members across the state, I think you'll find very few who have any experience running a billion-dollar enterprise in the case of DPS or a $500 million enterprise in the case of a medium-sized district or such. And I, yeah, I would add that they're, they're elected, Earl. So these are, po- these are politicians that were, are on our school board, and they're, they're subject to the political whims of the day, and you see much more turnover and whiplash in terms of board values than you do on a corporate board that probably has a lot more continuity and experienced members. And we are asking them, to Jason's point, to oversee millions of dollars of public funds and in larger districts upward of billion dollars. And I think that's a very um, a large responsibility for, for people who don't have any training in managing large budgets. You know, we could probably have another podcast on how would you correct the system so that it could be more effective. But let's, let's continue with the report here for a second, shall we? You talked about some long-term trends um, in your report last year, Brenda. Uh, how do you see those long-term trends uh, and, you know, materializing in light of this report that's just uh, kind of an update on what's going on? Yeah, I think that we've seen a shift from spending in the classroom to spending in other areas on student support services, on administrative functions. And I think we it's a concerning trend, especially when you see, when I say instructional expenses, I'm talking about teacher salaries as well. And I think we've all, you know, we all recognize the importance of a teacher. We know that from research, it's the, it makes the biggest difference in a, in a child's educational progress. But we also just know that intuitively as parents when we see the value of teachers in our kids' lives. 
and yet we continue to pay them. Their rate of pay is not keeping pace with the influx of dollars coming into the system. So the share of spending going to teacher salaries has been on a decline for many, many years. At the same time that we in the general public are all saying we think teachers should be paid more. So there is some type of disconnect happening that probably relates back to our just conversation about board government, board you know about governance and management of districts. Um, but I think that that's a trend that I'm hoping that if we continue to call attention to, that we can all kind of put pressure on to address. Jason, as I read the report that you that uh, that will be coming out, and I had a chance to look at the draft, so a little bit of a, an advantage over some folks. My sense of reading the report was I care about outcome. And if that means one teacher or a teacher's aide, or if that means supplemental uh, help to that teacher, I don't care. I want a teaching unit in that classroom to be successful. Is there such a thing as a teaching unit other than just a teacher that is a model that we ought to think about funding? Or should you just throw Earl Wright as a teacher into the classroom with 30 kids and say, go for it? No, great point. The only reason our educational structure from the school to the classroom is the way it is, is because that's the way it's always been done. There's no reason why we can't uh, innovate models, tr- experiment, try other proven models that aren't as popular. Unfortunately, there is this kind of factory mindset in public schools today that says we're going to do this because tradition says so or because it's the most convenient or easy thing, but it's not looking out for the best interests of students. What they need is variety. They need optionality. They need to have various forms of effective education in the classroom at the school level. There's no reason why we should continue doing something that has, for all this time, netted us less than 50% grade level proficiency. I would add that you, you, you hit it the nail on the head when you said it's about student outcomes, right? We're not, we don't want to pay teachers more for the sake of just, I mean, I think you, we want to make sure they have a, a living wage, but it's about, so we want can attract the best and the brightest yes. and get better student outcomes. And so I'm going to throw out a shocking uh, proposal here. What, what if we pay teacher based on performance and their ability to drive student outcomes? I have a, a, another question for you and, and for both of you, actually. Religious schools are noted not pay teachers very well. But Brenda, charter schools are noted for not paying teachers as well either. But your previous reports have shown the outcomes with regards to religious institutions and education and charter have been exceptionally good relative to public schools that pay more. Mm -hmm. Besides, and I know in your study you said they weren't cherry-picking students, and your report suggested that. Please explain to me why pay is so important if charter schools and religious schools can do it with significantly less and they get better outcome. Yeah, well, so a couple things there. One is to just remind everyone that these are averages. So I think when we try to, we try to read a lot into kind of the average state salary when there's huge variances district by district and similar charter schools. So there are charter schools that are paying more and they're doing it in an innovative way. To Jason's point, there's no reason we can't innovate and there are charter schools uh, third Future Schools, for example, exactly. that pays based on performance and student outcomes and on high-demand subject areas. So when yep. they want to get recruit a position that's hard to fill, that person gets paid more. We do this in the private sector all the time. They're doing it, and they're able to get individual teachers much more pay than their competitors or their um, kind of local schools. Um, and the other thing, too, though, is we also know that school culture is incredibly important. And again, I would argue that anywhere in any industry, that culture 
is a huge factor of why a person stays in their job, and that oh, comes down totally, to leadership. Totally agree. There's all sorts of studies, absolutely. regardless of where you are, that support that. Yes, absolutely. So I think that's why you see teachers staying in schools longer that maybe they're you know making a little bit less money at. You mentioned that we have this significant increase in administrators and principals, Jason. And thank you for raising that. Beyond the negative, can you please explain what the positive reason might be for that so that we can kind of give some credit to maybe there's been some forethought with regards to those increases? Sure. To be fair, um, school systems do take on a lot that is outside of the core functionality of classroom teaching. There is counseling services. There is special education services. There's extracurricular. There's athletics. There's a lot uh, that happens in a school other than teaching, reading, writing, uh, and math. Uh, so that's where the ex- the the other expenses um, happen. Some of it, anyway. Some of it, exactly. Right. So I think we'd probably need to take a, a much closer look to make sure that allocation is is responsible and effective. I'm blown away by the the data and the information with regards to the decreasing in students. I'm I'm still puzzled. But the answer about homeschooling, boy, I sure do understand that. Uh, For full disclosure, I now have a granddaughter who's homeschooled. And interestingly enough, as far as her academics are concerned, she's advancing faster academically because of the uniqueness of what she needs, Jason, relative to what was being provided in the school. So, Brenda, I sure can identify with what you're saying, just one, one example. But are there other staffing issues or other issues that this study brings up that you think we ought to to bring out in this podcast that people are aware of, Jason, Brenda, any closing thoughts that you would like to make certain that we as a group further understand? Listen, again, I think sadly one of the headlines coming out of this report is that teachers do not appear to be a budgetary priority. In fact, more money is moving away from the classroom and the trends that I'm seeing. And that's a big issue because in in my closing thought, I'll just say this, that education, I don't think is really on par with with the other social ills, uh, you know, crime, health, housing, poverty. I think it's the central issue. I think it's very difficult to improve our quality of life and, and improve ourselves as a society without fixing this problem. So the data says that one, it is a problem. And in some ways, we're trending in the wrong direction. That's what I hope. Uh, shine, I hope this report will help shine some light, educate some legislators, policymakers, influencers, decision makers, so that they can be better armed to make better decisions. Brenda, I think what we see from these long-term trends is that we do need to do things differently, even regardless of of COVID-19. I think what the pandemic provides is an influx of cash for schools to have that space to innovate and do things differently. And I think there's a way to do that in a way that doesn't lock them into these long-term obligations, but rather can we use these funds to think about how we do rework our salary schedules and how we create different and new positions and and pay pay teachers in a different, better way. And I think we have this opportunity with this influx of dollars to target this to uh, student interventions as well, to really hone in on the individual needs of kids and ensure the dollars are getting to the to addressing learning loss. So there's an opportunity here. I think a lot of us are watching it with hope and optimism, but also you know, a, a cautious optimism that we've only got about two years left of these funds, and can they be used in the best manner possible? So your challenge to us as parents and grandparents and to school districts is 
hey, there's this, as you said, window of opportunity, and there's a lot of money there, and it's a chance to make up this deficiency in proficiency, and that, that we really ought to be focused on it and aware of it. And that's your challenge to us when you look at this data and say, where are we at this point in time? Absolutely. And parents can be advocates and should be advocates for their for their kids every day in, in talking with their building leaders and their teachers about what are the opportunities available for, for kids that are you know, that need a certain acceleration or catch up on either end. You know, what can my kid get and what's available to my student and be that advocate. You look at the ever increasing funding, the stagnant and often declining academic performance, and you have to ask the question, what does accountability look like? for the taxpaying public, to the parents who entrust their students to to the care of schools, and to the students who are receiving uh, subpar educational services. You've said, Brenda and Jason, you've alluded to it, that there are teaching techniques that work. How does every school district, is every school district aware of it? Is every superintendent, principal aware of it? And it's just as a matter of a parent or grandparent getting engaged and saying, how is my uh, my daughter or son or granddaughter or grandson being educated in reading and math, or is there something else I'm missing? I think we need to drastically rework teacher preparation programs, and I think maybe we, we dedicate another podcast to that conversation. <laughs> well, Agreed. let's do that. <laughs> yes. All right. Thank you very much for both your time. I enjoy the lively discussion of these issues, and I'm excited to read the new report, even though I saw the draft, so I'm looking for the final are there any final words that you want to leave the listeners with today? I know we've had some final comments. If not, I understand. Oh, thank you for having Thanks us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Hey, it's great to have both of you, and thank you so much for your time. And for those of you listening, I hope you enjoyed this. And, uh, and if there's anything more we ought to be thinking about, please uh, consider contacting Common Sense Institute, and uh, we'd be glad to respond to what else you think we ought to be considering in the area of education. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.